See this book here? It's the Bible. I've probably read this thing 20 times over the past many years of my life. I've read about people of faith in this book. And sometimes I've concluded as I've been reading along that I could never have that kind of faith. I couldn't be like them. I, I couldn't have that kind of confidence in God. And when I'm going along and I'm in the story or the account of Abraham, and I, I ask myself, if I were 80 years old, would I really be fully confident that I was going to impregnate my wife and we were going to have a baby at 80? If I were Moses and I were pressed up against the sea and I saw the entire Egyptian army, surprise, thought you were going to get away, didn't you, my little pretty? <laughs> would I have really, really trusted that God would make a way? Or if I were Peter and John, just going about their business, and I see this cripple. Clearly, the guy's been deformed by birth. Would I have the faith to say, get up and walk? I don't know. I, str I struggle from time to time. Have you ever read one of those stories and thought to yourself, well, I could never have that kind of faith? Of course you have. We all have. I have. A lot of times, though, there's this disconnect between what we read in the Bible, the kind of faith we read about in the Bible, and the kind of faith that we live out day to day. In the Bible, the sea is parted. In the Bible, the smaller army wins. In the Bible, the man or the woman is healed. But because our lives don't always feature these big God blockbuster moments, we have a tendency to, to conclude that maybe this stuff doesn't happen anymore. Or maybe this stuff isn't for me. You know, there are actually some people who argue in the reform camp that, hey, since we have the Bible, God doesn't need to do anything big anymore. To that, I say, horse pucky! That's not true. That's not true. It's bad theology to boot. If you're honest, haven't there been times where you've hesitated to ask for God, ask God to do something big? because you didn't necessarily want to put God on the spot or worse, walk away disappointed? Yeah, there have been. Things that you needed to do that just seemed impossible in your eyes. And so we lower our expectations, don't we? We pray things like this, Lord, give me a good day. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean, Lord, please don't let my supervisor, who is a jerk, show up to work this morning? Does it mean, Lord, please let my computer boot the first time? I mean, what, good, what is a good day? How do you define a good day? Um, and then we'll pray things like, uh, God, just help them. Help them how? Help them just generically, you know, blow up their home, help them win the lottery. I mean, you know, okay, or, or God, just be with me, just be with them. And again, it's not like any of these prayers are evil, okay? It's not like, you're, you know, God hates you because you pray those things, but... I think those kinds of prayers show how low our expectations have gotten of God. When we read in the Bible, we read different prayers. God, even though I'm barren, give me a baby. God, even though I am diseased and I don't have a hospital, I don't even know what one is, heal me. God, uh, even though we have nothing, and there's a drought and famine, and, and literally the land is being sold first thing tomorrow morning. Provide for us. God, part the sea. God, make the sun stand still. Let me ask you a question. 
What if God is still able, and I know it's early for me to ask that, what if God is still able and willing to do big things? What if he's still able and willing to do big things? How would you know? And would you have the faith to count on God to do what he's promised? Today, I actually want to cajole you and me to have a little more faith, to believe that God can, in fact, move mountains, that he can reconcile, that he can heal, that he can provide, that he can do the impossible. And to do that, I want to peer into the life of Joshua. So we're going to be in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10. Joshua was, is one of my favorite people from the Bible, and he was Moses' assistant. But before that, I want to define faith for you as simply as I can. A lot of people will talk about faith, and they'll say, well, it's belief, it's trust. If I had to condense faith into a one-word synonym, it would be confidence. Confidence. And if I could give the simplest definition of faith, it would be this. Faith is confident action in response to God. Faith is confident action in response to what God has promised. Faith is confident action in response to what God has done. Faith is confident action in response to what God has made known. And so let's look into Joshua chapter 10. Joshua was uh, born a slave in Egypt, and he witnessed firsthand all of the miraculous stuff that played out with the Egyptians and the Israelites, the plagues, the plundering, the walking triumphantly out of the city gates. I mean, he saw it all firsthand. And, and when they came to uh, the edge of Canaan, Joshua was one of the ten people that Moses selected to go out and spy out the land and come back and give a report. And Joshua, Joshua believed that God was powerful enough and good enough to, to do what he had promised. There's a reason, by the way, it's called the promised land. God promised them that land, and that's why it got the nickname, okay? So they're, they're on the border of Canaan. Joshua comes back, and what is the report he gives? Oh, this is awesome. Let's take it. Let's go. But eight, right, all the other spies, eight of the spies, they're like, oh, there's giants, and we're all going to die. It's terrible. They have nukes. It's bad. You know, they didn't have nukes, really, but, you know, and fear in that moment carried the day the Israelites shrunk back and they were forced to go place to place in the desert for 40 years until they came back. Well, Joshua chapter 10 takes place after two big miracles. It takes place after God literally stops up the flow of the Jordan River and it takes place after the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, just like the song, okay? So here we are in Joshua 10. And here's what's going on, and just you can follow along with me on the screen. Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, which was a Canaanite city at that point, heard that Joshua had captured and completely destroyed Ai and killed its king, just as he had destroyed the towns of Jericho and killed its king. He also learned that the Gibeonites had made peace with Israel and were now their allies. So he and his people became very afraid when they heard all this because Gibeon was a large town, as large as the royal cities and larger than Ai, and the Gibeonites were strong warriors. And he's thinking, well, golly, if they cowed, we're hosed. So King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent messengers to several other kings. And there's the long list, okay? Hoham, wouldn't you love to name your kids some of these? Piram, Debir, Japhia. That's great, okay? So come and help me. Basically, hey, there's strength in numbers. Let's combine. 
And sure enough, that's what they do. These five Amorite kings combined their armies for a united attack and moved their troops into place and attacked Gibeon. Verse 6, the men of Gibeon quickly realized, sent messengers to Joshua, don't abandon your servants now. They pleaded, come at once, save us, help us. For all the Amorite kings who live in the hill country have joined forces to attack us. And here we get into the kicker parts of this account, of this story. Verse 7, so Joshua and his entire army including his best warriors, left Gilgal and set out for Gibeon. Don't be afraid of them, the Lord said to Joshua, for I have given you what? Victory. This is a promise of God directly to Joshua. I have given you victory over them, not what? A single one of them will be able to stand up against you. So then verse 9, So Joshua traveled all night from Gilgal and took the Amorite army by surprise. The Lord threw them into a panic. Miracle number one. The Israelites slaughtered great numbers of them at Gibeon. Then the Israelites chased the army along the road to Beth Horon, killing them all along the way. And as the Amorites retreated down the road, the Lord destroyed them with a terrible hailstorm. Miracle number two. From heaven that continued until they reached Azekah. I love this. The hail killed more of the enemy than the Israelites killed with the sword. So up to this point, Joshua arrives with the army. They face off. God does something, and there's a commotion among these five united armies, and they're confused. They can't, they can't form ranks. They can't engage the enemy the way they should. And so, boom, miracle number one. Then along the way, uh, as they're retreating, in full retreat, the Gibeonites are now fleeing from the Israelites, and God sends down hailstones. I mean, can you imagine if you're a member of the army? You know, this is, if you're, I'm not, I've never been in the military, but guys who I've heard uh, that are ground troops, when they see the Air Force guys go vo- overhead, it's like, yes, finally, <laughs> you're going to be hosed now because nothing can stand up against the United States Air Force. And so this was their moment. The Israelites are like, oh, yeah, you know, and there's the hail. But the kicker is in verse 12. Uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 12. On the day the Lord give the, gave the Israelites victory over the Ammonites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all the people of Israel. He said... Let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Agilon. As a person of faith, I think maybe I would have prayed for some C-130s. I don't know, maybe some Apache attack wing helicopters. I mean, anything really. The sun stands still. I mean, of all the things you're going to pray. But see, Joshua had this promise you will be given victory and not a single one will stand against you. And as the sun is setting in the sky, he sees the fact that parts of the army are going to escape and disappear into the night. And so he prays this prayer. Make, I need more daylight. Verse 13, so the sun stood still and the moon stayed in place until the nation of Israel had defeated its enemies. Confession time. Do I believe that the God of the universe caused our earth to stop rotating on its axis? No. Do I believe that they had light longer than, they, than a longer day and that as far as they knew, the daylight was extended? Oh, yeah. Do I know how it happened? Not a clue. But the thing about the Israelites that's consistent is when they write down stuff, they don't make stuff up. They're not like the other uh, people of the area. 
Uh, they tell stories about themselves that are bad stories. They make their kings look bad. See, the Israelites, when they're recording history, they just tell it. Here's, here's what happened. Sometimes they look good. Sometimes they look bad. And so I take it at face value that this happened. This is, come on, is this not like on the scale of huge? It makes no sense to you or me, but it's certainly impossible in the realm of impossible. And so I want to ask this question. What if God wants that kind of faith to be normal? I believe God wants his adopted sons and daughters to dare to ask him for the impossible. I do. It doesn't matter if you're an elementary school teacher. It doesn't matter if you're a high school student. It doesn't matter if you're a banker or you work IT at UK. It does not matter. God wants you to have faith to believe that he can do the impossible. I don't think that kind of faith is crazy, and I want to give, now I want to talk about why I don't think this is crazy. You and I have faith every day, don't we? We saw it in the video. Every morning, my alarm clock goes off. It's amazing. I have faith. When I go to bed, it's going to go off. Once or twice, my faith has been tested because there's been a power outage. <laughs> okay? I have faith that my fridge is going to work. A few weeks ago, it was doing this. I lacked faith that it was healable, but thank God it was for only $40. <laughs> it's still chilling the food in my home. I, I have faith that my car will start. So do you, I mean, we all have this faith. Did you know that in 1970, Richard Nixon, famous for other things, Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon decided that the United States was going to move off of at what was known at that time as the gold standard. See, at that time, before 1970, if you had a dollar bill, you could go into any bank or federal depository and demand the equivalent in gold or silver. They were actually gold certificates, silver certificates. On the back of U.S. currency, I have one. I didn't think to bring it. On the back, it says, this can be redeemable. And, you know, boom, there it is. But in 1970, Nixon was like, come on, come on, come on. Really, when people have dollars, do you know what they're doing? Those dollars, my friends, are backed by the full faith and confidence of the United States government. Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> but really, our currency has value only because people have faith in the confidence in the United States government. And yes, if that faith or confidence goes away, guess what will happen to the value of our currency? <laughs> All right? Faith, there it is in everyday life. All of those things, an alarm clock, a dollar bill, uh, the refrigerator, even people that we count on, those are all objects of our faith. But if God becomes the object of our faith, believing impossible things is no longer crazy. If you believe that God is who he claims to be through, through his revelation and through his word, um, when you get a good picture of who God is, and to do that, I want, I want to turn to Psalm 62. When God is in the picture, bold, assertive, believing faith makes complete sense, and here's why. Here's why. Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12. This is what the psalmist says. God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. Power, O God, belongs to you. Unfailing love, O Lord, is yours. He's saying two things, two very important things. God is great and powerful. God made the universe. God's big. God can do anything he wants. 
Hello? God is powerful. God is great. The second thing he's saying is that God wants to respond. God cares. God desires to do something in and through you. And isn't it true when we struggle? Most of the time we're struggling with one of those two things, aren't we? We're struggling with the fact that we're not sure God really is able or that God really cares or wants to do something for us and in us and through us. And that's where most of the struggles, and I struggle with that from time to time. My biggest struggles are on the good side. I struggle from time to time believing that God actually wants to do something in and through me. But at the end of the day, I'm confident he does. And I want to talk about some reasons why I'm confident. But here's a question I want to pose in light of Joshua, in light of the sun standing still, in light of the fact that God is all-powerful and God is good. If you accept God as real and who he claims to be, are you reluctant to trust him with something big? How's come? Why? Would you be willing this morning, like the father of the demon-possessed boy, to say to God, I believe, but help my unbelief? Would you be willing to allow God to grow your faith? Here's where, if you have a card, uh, I'm going to ask you to write something down if you want, if you want to do it in your head, but I think writing it down will actually help you name it and be specific. I want you to think of something right now. What's one thing you need God to do, God to accomplish, something in your eyes that seems impossible? What is that one thing? Maybe it has something to do with your career. Maybe you're wanting a spiritual breakthrough at work. The personalities in play, everything about work dynamic is just doggy dog. It's, it's secular, beyond secular. It, it's just almost poisonous, and you want the environment. You want a spiritual breakthrough. Maybe you, you want your spiritual breakthrough at home. Maybe you want it in church. Maybe it's a physical healing or an emotional healing. Maybe someone you care about is really far from God. Maybe it has to do with standing strong against temptation. I don't know, but what is one big thing in your eyes that as far as you can see seems absolutely impossible? And let me make some qualifications here, all right? If what you're writing down isn't biblically based or Jesus-focused, if some key people aren't going, yep, then there's a chance, there's a good chance you may be off target a little bit. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. Um, but here's some advice from Stephen Furtick, who's a young, young, young buck pastor in North Carolina, and this is what he says. When it comes to bold, assertive kinds of faith, be specific. Don't just say, God, give me a good day. Pray something specific. God, I want you to use me in my workplace so that when I leave this job, there's at least two people in your kingdom because of the relationships I form. At the end of the day, you're going to know whether you hit the bullseye or not, aren't you? Be specific, all right? The second thing is, it, understand it doesn't have to be something permanent. It can be something that's seasonal in your life. But last and not least, bring on a team. Bring some other people along who are going to pray and believe with you and have faith with you that God can do the impossible. I know that I can count on God because God tells me that I can count on him and because I've seen it firsthand. I want to share a few stories with you this morning that I think will encourage you and build your faith. I'm going to have to change their names because they record this and put this on the internet, but you'll know who I'm talking about. John and Susan 
were one of the 10 families that helped start Generations. And in 2006 and 2007, John and Susan felt like God was calling them to a foreign country, a Muslim country, to be missionaries. They were just here a couple of weeks ago. And they're now back in Istanbul. When he and when the two of them were talking about this stir of God and the, you know, and the faith that they had, God wants us to pluck up and plunk down in the middle of a Muslim city to live, to tell, to show them Jesus, to live and be and proclaim the gospel. I thought they were crazy. And when I would interface with them, they sold everything, literally. And they, they're there now in Istanbul. And I remember having conversations and walking away into my head saying, I could never do that. I don't have that kind of faith. You know, the funny thing is, a few months ago, I was talking with my friend Lee, and you know what my friend Lee said to me? Max, I could never do what you did to walk away from your salary and to start a church out of nothing. That's, I, I don't have that kind of faith. You know, I, when I thought when he was telling me, I'm just an ordinary guy. What do you mean? I mean you know, what? Huh? You're just like me, and I'm just like the people in the Bible, and so are you. All of us are ordinary people. Think about it for a moment. Moses, when he encountered the burning bush, what was he doing? He was tending his father-in-law's sheep. Joseph was just the young kitten in a big, big litter. Ruth was just some unfortunate young widow. And on and on and on it goes. Ordinary people through whom God did extraordinary things. God can do the impossible. And in order to build your faith this morning, I want to share several impossible things that have come in my life just because I had a little bit of faith. Uh, When I was a sophomore in college, I showed up, I wrote the check to Wheaton, and I, I drained everything in my bank account. I didn't have money for books. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any money for anything next. And for that whole first week, I prayed and prayed and prayed. And I was like, I was desperate. God, I need you to provide. I need you to provide. I need you to provide. I know I have a job, but I need money for books now. And one morning, slipped under my door was a check for $500. Coincidence? Not on your life. In 2003, when it came time to do the planning stages of launching this church, um, the leadership at Church of the Savior said, yes, go. Daughter Church, we're all behind it, but understand we can't pay your salary to do this. Oh, hmm, how are we going to eat? We need a job. Jenny and I prayed at the end of that bed, God, give us a job. Give Jenny a job in one of these two places. I mean, we actually fleeced God. 45 minutes later, she had a job. Again, coincidence? I don't think so. I remember all four years at Wheaton College, I was one of a group of crazy, crazy, stupid people, and we prayed for revival. We didn't know what we were asking for. But we prayed for revival every Sunday for like several hours. We would pray, for God, move on the campus of Wheaton College. God, do it. And we prayed in 1986, 1987, 1988, 1989, 1990, and Jenny and I moved here. And then the service went throughout the day, and then it went overnight, and then it went the next day, and the day after that, and God started moving on that campus, and then it started to spread to other college campuses. There's a book written about it. You can read about what happened. 
I don't take credit for it. It was the move of God. But it was in response to faith. There are people in this gym today. You're here because you got prayed here. Or you know someone who got prayed in here. I've got friends who have been prayed into the kingdom. Okay? Don't settle. Don't settle for just a good day for God to help you. Don't settle for that. Have a little faith that God will heal, that God will move, that God will provide, that God will do the impossible.